good morning. I'm Cassie Dixon, and I'm a spinner, a natural dyer, a weaver who specializes in historical coverlets and linens. I live in Whittier, North Carolina, which is at the base of the Great Smoky Mountains. And welcome to Cut the Craft. to the realization that like or at least I want everything in the world to just reduce to fibers because <laughs> I'm like oh well, yeah. what is fibers and flax is fibers and like it's all about making cordage and like all this kind of stuff and so I'm a little bit obsessed <laughs> with just the idea of 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 fibers and textiles and they influence my work and all that kind of stuff I mean, I don't know why I'm still surprised when there are organizations for like niche things like a coverlet museum, for example, <laughs> or like a bookbinding equipment museum in California. Uh -huh. But like Amy's would just be like a bunch of little strings hanging around <laughs> in a room. And she's like, ooh, look at this one. Like, this is a very special fiber for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <it's> so funny. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I won't keep talking. <laughs> Anytime you get anytime you get Amy riding the fiber train, it gets dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I suppose are we ready to get into it? I'm ready. Yeah, sure. All right. Well, welcome to Cut the Craft, everybody. I'm Brian, and I'm Amy, and we are here with Spinner Weaver, Natural Dyer, uh, Cassie Dixon. I was trying to make sure I remembered to check all of the boxes for all of the many things that you do. <laughs> Uh, That's so, the problem with having such an interesting person on the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, so Cassie, can you tell us what you make and about your process and maybe give us some definitions for weaving terms like warp and weft and redding uh, for your listeners? Because I don't, I don't think that everyone is totally familiar with all those terms. Okay. Well, I weave something that is called the overshot coverlet. It's a hand-woven bed cover with a loom-controlled pattern. And I think the oldest dated one in the United States is 1773. Whoa. Before 1800s, the, the thread, the cotton the cotton gin, you know, to take the seeds out of the cotton was not invented, the spinning jenny. So before 1800, uh, the, they, people grew flax and they processed it to linen, linen yarn and they wove textiles. After 1800, by 1810, you could buy cotton thread. So the heyday of the American coverlet, and it's not just American, actually it's uh, southeastern Canada, all the way, which is near upstate New York, all up in there, all the way down to the deep south, people wove coverlets. And the heyday was uh, between 1810, 1850, up until the Civil War. After that, the Industrial Revolution, you know, took over. People were buying cloth, and most people quit weaving coverlets, except in the areas of the Appalachian Mountain region. Mm -hmm. So, and there were little pockets that people kept weaving them, but they are geometric patterns because it's a, they're loom controlled. The base of the fabric is a plain woven fabric. So it's, you have to have two shuttles to weave it. One shuttle is your ground fabric and the pattern shovel, 
uh, shuttle, which is the what carries your thread across the warp, the threads that are lengthwise on your warp. So that's like the little wooden, the little like wooden boat. The little boats, uh huh. Yes, boat shuttles, and that's what they're called. Hmm. And um, they they float that. So your your warp is threaded in a pattern, and the when you throw the pattern thread, it overshoots some of the warp threads, and it makes little geometric boxes, like little, not boxes, but uh, blocks. They make blocks, and it creates motifs, and motifs put together create patterns. And um, so it's, it, it goes where you, you know, you pack the thread down, and each, as you're weaving the blocks, the blocks, you weave them to their square, and you'll throw the shuttle and you, you throw the pattern shuttle and you beat and then you lift up the ground cloth and you throw the, the base uh, cotton. The pattern is the wool, the base is the, and the base uh, fabric is your cotton or linen. And then it just starts to create these patterns and they wove them in long panels and to cover the size of the bed they needed. I weave them in three panels usually uh, to fit a queen or king size bed, and I've been doing it for forty years. Whoa! <laughs> Making them for forty years. Wow! And I, I and the flax process. I actually got interested in in linen, spinning linen in the early seventies, and um, and mainly because my grandmother, we were doing linen. Uh, reproduction samplers on linen. She taught me so many different things for handcrafts. And I got into the flax. I started collecting antique flax processing tools. And, and then I ended up starting growing my own flax and processing linen and, and using the tools that they use to reproduce some fabrics, wow. mainly because I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about how things are made. Yeah. Yeah. So what did your grandmother, was she always doing that? Like as you were growing up and you were just kind of around it all the time? Oh yes. I learned how to sew at a very early age and I made my clothes and she made my clothes and she taught me to do quilting and all kinds of handwork, embroidery, cruel work on fabrics and um, knitting, crocheting, all, you know, all the handcrafts. Wow. And I was just that type of child that wanted to learn them. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's so cool. <laughs> it makes I love me really that. happy. <laughs> it made me happy too. Yeah. Was that was that something um, that she learned from her mother or her grandmother? Uh, you know, she was she was a seamstress uh, and she sewed some for uh, for her living and but she did at later in life she did not but um, mm-hmm. but she still continued to make things for me mm-hmm. and for my sisters and the and, you know mm-hmm. and um, for anything we needed she would she could make it. Wow. Wow. Ooh. Um could could I ask one technical question? You said uh, you said loom controlled and uh, patterns when you were talking about the different you know building up the motifs into patterns. Um, and does that just refer to the fact that you're sort of operating under a grid? So there's sort of like that kind of limitation, or what do you mean exactly when you say loom control? Uh, well, because all the threads you have to thread them in a pattern. 
and you do all the individual threads. So on a coverlet piece, I may have, I may have 2000 threads and all these threads are threaded into uh, a pattern. And then is I have to, I mean, I'm controlling the loom by raising the harnesses that they're threaded on um, mm -hmm. to create the patterns. But um, I'm, I'm limited by how many harnesses my loom has. Mm -hmm. And that's what I mean by, I guess, loom controlled. I, I'm doing all the work, but I'm, I'm lifting the harnesses, raising them to create the geometric patterns. Cool. So okay. it's it would be different then like if I, I follow a lot of um, Navajo rug weavers and, and things I like that. that work. Mm -hmm. And so like they from, I mean, my very limited knowledge of how all this works, it looks to me like that wouldn't be considered loom controlled because they're literally like moving the, the threads or the, um, sorry, the wool like individually into a certain shape or pattern on the piece that they're making. Whereas with yours, you're like, I have to set it up a certain way. And then you're basically like kind of restricted to how it's been set up. Does that, is that what you're saying? Well, on a Navajo loom, um, they still have heddle um, oh. that they, they'll run a stick with individual, every other thread so that oh. they could do tabby. They can lift the uh, they can lift the threads just the mm -hmm. same as a a harness does, mm -hmm. okay. and they're doing a tapestry weave. But I yeah. think they still use a type of lacing heddle like a okay. that that can lift every other thread. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well. Okay. <laughs> Wrong. wrong Amy. <laughs> no, I don't think you're wrong. No, I just, I, I, you know, there is just tapestries a little different than, you know, still, yeah, you know, interlacing between threads. Right. It's still, it's still controlled by the loom. Like there's no, it's not just free form or something. Yeah. And I may, I may have said it wrong, but I, you know, I just think about loom control is, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the harnesses and the threading. <laughs> okay. Okay. No. I mean, it also is a little bit difficult to try to explain something as complicated of a mechanism as a loom can be uh, over an audio format. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> exactly. The patterns can be so uh, complicated looking, but mm -hmm. actually it's simplicity. It's not, mm -hmm. they're not, it's not that hard to weave overshot. It's mm. just, um, I think the the consistency of your beat, the patience to weave one, and um, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of throwing. Um, I mean, people say, "How do you sit and just weave this?" You know, for yards and yards and yards of patterns, and and I don't, I don't mind it. It just, it's like watching something bloom. You know, you just keep weaving. Ooh, wow, I love I like that, that analogy. Yeah. I was going to ask a quick, a quick two-part question. Number one is how often do you get the question? Um, how long does it take you to make a coverlet? And then the second part of that question is how long does it take you to make a coverlet? <laughs> uh, I'm asked it all the time. Yeah. So, um, it takes me a couple of weeks to weave a coverlet. I have about 80 hours probably in a single bed, uh, two, uh, you know, just a single seam. Mm -hmm. But if I weave a, 
king, a queen or king size it's usually 110 hours, 120 hours, depending on how large the spread is. Mm-hmm. So wow. it's a lot of hours involved yeah. in it. And that's not counting your, you know, if, if you had to spend something for it or natural dye, mm-hmm. your thread. I yeah. mean, that's just, you know, then you, you're adding a lot more time to something. Yeah. Plus, plus just the fact that you also are growing everything and processing oh, yeah. it into the thread too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. It, it, who could, who could afford it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cassie Dixon is the ultimate farm to table experience. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, I, I'll have to, I will have to tell you this because I know so many craftsmen and I have so many friends that that is their living and that's what they do. And they, they're, They've worked their whole lives at their craft. And I learned, I guess, I, I, I graduated from college. I was going to be a teacher. And I went. To, I, I started out actually in recreational therapy. And then I ended up teaching some teaching school and going back to college uh, for, for master's. But um, is I, I, left, I left and I tried for about four years to make a living at my craft. And this was in the 70s. There was no internet. And there was uh, the only means of selling your product was either on, you know, a festival, which my, my craft is not conducive to, I mean, too many hours, people want something inexpensive or to join a guild and to sell through big guild shows and, you know, Mm. things like that. And I just, I I just learned mostly I do word of mouth. People know that I'm a weaver, a coverlet weaver. They see I do a lot of demonstrations at my craft. So I meet people that way over the years. But after four years, I decided I really needed an income and I went back to teaching. Mm -hmm. So um, I have combined two careers. I mean, (laughs) full-time careers. And I, I guess I'm, I don't know. Uh, type A personality, whatever, but I, I get things done and I've always had um, co- woven coverlets over the years. I've woven over 40. I've, I've woven, I teach, you know, I take vacation leave. I don't, I didn't work in the summers a lot of times because I had off. So I did my crafts and I taught at schools. And so I've managed to combine two careers and I've shared my art, my crafts, my love of doing that with students in schools. So uh, it was the best of both worlds, actually. Oh, that's that's awesome. It's nice how in like retrospect, it seems like, oh, I have this decision that goes that way and this decision that goes that way. But then when you look at it in retrospect, it was just like one straight line to do what you were doing the whole time. Yeah, right. <laughs> Now, this is a, a very unique place where I live. Uh, uh, it's mountains, mountain communities. And my job was a college and career counselor. And I did financial aid. I helped students that are, were low-income, first-gen students uh, to go to college. I worked seventh grade mm-hmm. through 12th. And so I did Appalachian studies with art classes. I did chemistry classes with natural dyes. I did wow. uh, history classes. And I would go to these little schools. That was one school that was 100 kids. That was it, K through 12. And, oh, wow. um, and then most of the, most of the uh, rural schools here um, are about four, 400 students, about 100 in the night up. Uh, 
per grade or less in ninth, ninth through 12. So you get to know the kids and I've sent kids to John C. Campbell to learn a trade, you know, blacksmithing. And so I I was able to share, you know, and and also I live by the Cherokee Indian Reservation and um, I work with kids from the reservation and I've I've helped a lot of students with with finding careers in, like I do, combining careers. Mm -hmm. Wow. How does seasonality affect your work in terms of workflow and final product? Well, it really doesn't. I, like right now, I'm collecting broom sage, which is um, a dye plant. And if you cut it green, um, it stays green and it gives beautiful yellows. And I will over dye it with indigo. I use weld and uh, matter, matter root, uh, indigo, walnuts. I, I'm freezing walnuts right now and I'm dying with walnuts mm-hmm. and saving some for uh, projects in the winter and I have a nice loom space uh, in the, my basement area that um, I can do all kinds of projects and I work all year round I have to put a heater down there it gets kind of cold but but I go out <laughs> you know uh, living in the mountains um, we have four distinct seasons here and the winters can sometimes not be that that bad the um, temperature and I, I natural dye in the winter just like I do and I weave all winter Mm-hmm. So, and I retired from, from the school system. So I, I'm really full time at what I, my craft now. Part of the seasonality question kind of has to do with, uh, at least in my mind, you, I remember you talked about redding and I w- would love if you oh, okay. would mention that process, because I remember, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what redding is and what it does to the flax plant, but then also, um, kind of you know, I remember you saying like different times of the year will result in different um, kind of tonal qualities uh, or hue qualities of the the final fiber that you're weaving with. Is that correct? Yes. Um, so I plant, I grow my flax every year. I plant around April 1st and it takes three months to grow your flax or a little bit less, but um, I usually pull my flax about the third week in June and then I, I, you can dry the dry it and store it for later use. I don't usually ret in the summer because do ret and do retting is laying the flax on the ground and letting nature take its course in the rotting of the fibers. Just like if you're doing cordage or anything, people figured out a long time ago that if you live in nature, you watch nature, you plants will decay and the fibrous plants, the fibers are exposed. And somebody wondered a long time ago, said, you know, what if I got it before it rotted and, (laughs) you know, and and I could do something with it. I could twist it and make it into a strong thread. So um, I usually, if I, if I ret, to ret means to rot. So if I rot the fibers to get to these long flax fibers, inside the plant that run from the root to the flower tips that um, I, you can water ret and I, I will do that in the summertime in, in like little a pool, like a baby swimming pool, or you can mm-hmm. stream ret, let it sit in the stream and let the water yeah. rot it. Or um, I wait until fall, winter or spring to do ret, which and do retting is you're letting nature take over. 
So at each time of the year, you can get different colors. And I love to winter red. And if you have snow, which is, you know, I've taught students to, if they live in the north and you've got snow and you got a place where you can put your flax out on the snow, you'd have, you have to watch it. I mean, if you get a big pile of it, you don't know. But it, snow redding is going to give you a shades of blonde because, mm-hmm. or water redding. Um, the mold doesn't uh, form on the stalks. Oh. So the mold is what, it, it's a very, it's a, it'll just lightly just start to uh, decay where you, the fibers will start to be exposed. If you ret in the spring or the fall, you're going to get different shades of, of colors, grays to browns. And hmm. the mold actually stains the fibers inside as it builds up on the stalks. And you have to flip the flax in the field uh, pretty regularly to get an even ret. And it just is, is actually staining the fibers. So wow. uh, depending on the amount of uh, dewfall or rain and the sun drying it out, and, you know, it can take anywhere from four to six weeks sitting out in your backyard or in the field, you know, redding. Uh, Water redding is dependent upon temperature, how warm it is, how warm the water is. And that's a bacteria that eats at the outer stalk of the plant. And that's going to give you shades of blonde. So it's bacteria versus fungus and do redding. Oh, okay. Very interesting. See, uh, I lo- I'm I'm asking you all of this for very selfish reasons. I had a very <laughs> tiny flax crop this year, and oh, um, good. I have like one little. Uh, I don't remember what they're called. I guess shocks or something. It's oh, like the one that yeah. you, you stand up after you've harvested right. it, and it was just and dry it so, out. Mm-hmm. No, so I'm very excited. I can't wait. I'm going to re-listen to this again and again and again. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I was, uh, you know, I really. I like how it, it seems like you're talking about, you know, seasonality does affect these things, but it's like at any given time you have a zillion kind of things you're going on, whether it's a coverlet you're working on with the previous harvest while you're going out in the field that morning to like flip over um, a currently redding, uh, do redding batch of flax, and then also maybe harvesting some dye plants. So it's kind of like you're you know, always have something going on. (laughs) Oh, I always have something going on. I I have probably 10 projects going on at the same time. I always do. I have a lot of interest, (laughs) a lot of interest. In fact, I I have to scold myself all the time and say, not another thing. Do not, if you you know, but and then something comes along, I see it, and I, I'm so intrigued by it, and I, I, I've got to figure it out. Well, I can totally so, identify yeah. with that. I mean, it is encouraging, though, that you, you know, you've been doing this for 40 years, and there's still, like, little things that pop up, and you're like, ooh, that seems interesting. Like, yeah. you know, it just goes with the whole, it's always a lifetime. Yeah, yes, yeah. that's right. The hammer hits the chisel, a shock goes into the arm, a chip falls off. The mason and the block of rock become different through this action. Even the chipped off bit is suddenly its own entity. The rock and the carver go on this way, shaping one another. Much is like this. If you listen to some music you like a lot, that music is shaping who you are from that point forward. 
and the music you listened to prior led you to that point where you can hear what you're listening to in a certain way. The more time you spend with a person you love, the more you blend with them. And those you have been with in the past but can no longer love and spend time with for various reasons are partly responsible for who you are now and your being able to mesh with who you're now with. The temperature you like reveals your relationship to weather and therefore your sense of nature. Say person X goes to see person Y and it's a cold day. Person X hates the cold, but person Y loves it. They go on a walk and person Y is having such a nice time that person X doesn't mind the cold as much. In fact, person Y seems warm to person X. They fall in love. We all have a lineage that shapes us even if we don't have the information regarding who it was and where they came from. Rodin thought of the thinker when working on a commission based on Dante's Divine Comedy, which was inspired by theologies and philosophies which came from and came from and came from. Meanwhile the statue doesn't actually think because it doesn't have a brain, and it got its name from the foundry workers who set the bronze cast. And that's bronze! What about rocks? As Alan Watts says, where there's rocks, watch out. And let's not forget we live on a big rocky one floating in space and all talk about where any of all this comes from is largely theoretical. It's a fine line between seemingly disparate things, a line that Miriam Johnson chips away at. Miriam is a carver, mason, and sculptor in the UK who sparks life in seemingly dead rocks. When they are done with each other, what's left are sculptures that can leave a mark on you, be it a still life of a sheet draped over a box or a centaur fighting a serpent. In the next episode of Cut the Craft, she's going to break down the differences between those positions in a clean-cut way, as well as discuss the lineage of stoneworkers who have helped shape her. By virtue of tuning in, when the sound waves vibrate in your ear canals getting translated into information you decipher, you too will continue being shaped. Can you tell us about your interest in natural dyes and how did you get started like with, with dyes at all? Well, this kind of goes back, you know, I, I went to, to school and I actually went to school out in Wyoming, that's where I met a lady that taught me how to spin. I honestly never thought I'd be a weaver. I, I, if it didn't fit in my in my car, you know, I, then I said, nope, can't do that. It's too too much stuff. And but then and, you bought a U-Haul. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I bought a big loan. But I, when I went back, I was I was spinning. I, I, I loved spinning because I was using the the wool I made, you know, that I, I first started spinning wool and then I got into spinning flax. And then I never really thought I'd be a weaver. I, but I, somebody crossed my path that was natural dyeing. And I said, Oh gosh, I've got to learn how to do that. That is so neat. And you're taking all this stuff from, from plants and collecting your plants and dyeing. So I started doing that. And then I was knitting with my, my fibers and I was on the Natchez Trace at, at a little festival, and there was a lady weaving a natural dyed shawl. And that they were real popular at the time. And I just looked at it, and I went, oh, my gosh. I, I just walked up to her, and I said, 
you know, I never thought I'd be a weaver, but I love what you're doing. And I, I, I want to buy a loom. Can you tell me what I need to do? <laughs> she, oh, she, took, she went, she took me, invited me over to her house and I went over there and I said, I don't want a little loom. I want a big loom. And, uh, <laughs> and she said, uh, she said, okay, I'm going to tell you exactly what to get. And so I started, you know, I went from natural dyeing to, to weaving natural dyed um, Afghans. And I was, I, I was selling them. I was doing little festivals and selling them. And so I, there was a little, there was a lady in Gatlinburg uh, that, that taught at Aramont School of Arts and Crafts, Mary Frances Davis. And she had a little book called The Dye Pot. And I met Mary Frances and bought her little book. And it was all the plants that, you know, that were local that you could use for dyes. And I, I used cool. local dyes forever using those, using her little booklet. And then eventually um, I met Jim Lyles. He wrote The Art and Craft of Natural Dyeing and is kind of a Bible to me. It's... Um, he did. He worked. He was a professor at the University of Tennessee at the time, and wrote the book and did all this research on historical dyes. And it was a lot on dyeing linen, which I was also interested in learning the differences in dyeing with protein fibers and you know plant and and like linen and and um, like cellulose, cellulose fibers exactly. So cool. it's different. It's a different process. And I was very interested in that. And I got into full force <laughs> dying. <Yeah. you know. laughs> wow. And my first coverlet I wove was all hand spun and natural dyed with indigo. Wow. And I use, wow. I use natural dyed wools in my coverlets and mm-hmm. I, I don't all the, t- I don't do it all the time, but, but for special pieces I do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that actually uh, reminds me. Can you talk about why cover so many coverlets that you see are two colors, white and blue? Oh, because the white, yeah, the the white is the, your base. That's your tabby, your base fabric, mm-hmm. and it was either it was either linen or it was cotton. The pattern wefts are the natural dyed or the colored fabrics. It's, mm-hmm. It was usually wool, so. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to have a, a base, you know, the base fabric. I mean, and it can be wool, but uh, I mean, you could have a twill fabric, for instance, uh, you know, a, a twill coverlet. But the overshot coverlets had a base fabric of cotton or linen, and the pattern weft, the colored weft, was your wool. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was so, uh, was. Was wool easier to dye or something like that? Or Oh, it definitely would uh, be easier to dye. Yeah. And oh, okay. does blue, in my opinion, like I see blue and white all the time. And so blue, mm-hmm. from what I understand, like the indigo is much more like color fast and doesn't change the way that like, um, like I, from what I understand that green and maybe red don't will sometimes change to sort of like a brownish color over time. Is there, is there any um, historical precedent for that? I usually, I'll say, I know that a lot of people use a lot of different plants for dyes, but the ones that really stay in um, 
is like um, weld. If you're using yellows, mm -hmm. uh, weld is probably the most light fast black oak. Um, I mean, black oak bark. Um, if I was using yellows and if um, black oak was another cheaper uh, bark that was used in, I guess, the 1700s and, or 1800s that, that is really light fast, fustic, you know, but those kind of, those kind of um, dyes like matter, matter stays in. A lot of coverlets were, were done with matter root. And, and indigo is really light fast. Mm -hmm. And so I usually stick with the ones that were tried and true light fast dyes. If I was going to weave a coverlet, I'm not going to weave it with something like pokeberries that are very light sensitive to light. I'm going to yeah. weave it with something that the dyers used that they knew that they were going to last. Those dyes were going to last in those fabrics for a hundred years. Or longer. I think that's really cool. interesting. I, I and I I think some there's something about that that feels important because when you think about natural dyes and the decisions that people were making at the time, it's like, well, why is everything two or three different colors? Well, the reason is because you don't want to put a bunch of time into a coverlet and then have it be all splotchy after you wash it. <laughs> Right. You want it to stay That's pretty right. for a long time. <laughs> That's exactly right. And, and yeah. most of them, I mean, they traded, I mean, they didn't get matter all the time. They could get, they could keep an indigo pot going. Um, and they could get things like hickory bark uh, for yellows. Barks uh, actually are, are stronger. They keep the yellows. Hickory bark, um, black oak bark, walnuts, you know, those keep mm -hmm. the, keep the dyes. But some of these others, you know, you, they, I guess sunlight will eventually take away color if you leave it in the sunlight a lot, but, um, some dyes, yes, but some, but, <laughs> but some dyes are definitely more light fast than others. Well, that does remind me of another slightly different question, um, which Amy and I talked a little bit about before the interview, but, uh, Jim Croft, who's one of my bookbinding mentors uh, and who you've corresponded with a little bit, uh, he feels very strongly or talks a lot about um, the difference between the terms flax and linen, whereas a lot of people use them interchangeably. And it was something to do with, I think flax refers to the specific fiber, but that linen is like a quality of the, the textile, the woven textile. Has that been the case in your experience or does linen re always refer to like a flax fabric or what's like the common practice, I guess, now in, in the weaving world? You know, you can have hemp linen. You can, I mean, okay. I, I would, I would have to say that if it's a bast fiber, the term linen could be applied to. If it, if it was nettle fiber, it could be nettle linen. But I've, oh. I have heard that hemp, uh, it also the term linen, whether it's hemp or, or most of the linen, you, I would say you think of as, as flax related. But, but I, I consider hemp uh, woven into fabric linen. 
Oh my gosh. So then linen is is a general term for like a f- somewhat finely woven textile? I think textile? it absolutely could be. Yes, that could be. Okay, cool. Is it only used with plant fibers? Like, would you call something a wool linen? Oh, uh, no. Mm-hmm. No. Okay. No. <laughs> no, 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 Amy. no, 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 no. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I just know that, I, I know that hemp, uh, I mean, I have, I've seen it in books and everything is, is hemp mm-hmm. is also referred to, woven hemp is also referred as linen. And mm-hmm. when you analyze, it's very hard to tell the differences unless you really look under a mic- microscope at the mm-hmm. fiber structure to tell cool. if it's, if, which one it is. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know what the magnification you need is, but uh, one very common thing that Jim has rolling around in his Mary Poppins uh, caliber pockets are uh, <laughs> he always has like loops um, where he pulls it out and looks really closely at the fibers to try to see uh, what they are. Yes. But I don't know how close <laughs> you have to get, but it is like, it's always funny seeing him look up at you and you see one eye like magnified and the other <laughs> one just looking at you. <laughs> <laughs> like the Monopoly guy. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I look forward to meeting him in person. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this coming oh. spring. Yeah, we have a lot nice. of interest in common. I have my high tanning days and all that. Oh, oh, that's what I'm doing. Amy's now. in the middle of that right now. Yeah, I've got to oh, hide, uh, hide in a bucket in the basement right now. <laughs> are you brain? Are you brain tanning? Uh, no, this one is going to be rawhide actually. So thankfully, I don't have to go through the process of brain tanning oh. by myself because that's a lot of work. <laughs> right now, this one's just uh, rawhide. Yeah. Yes, it is. It's a lot of work. <laughs> no, I got into all that. I did that for years too. Oh, wow. Oh, I love how, I love when I have so much in common with people. It's like we all do the same crazy <laughs> stuff. Like everyone, like, oh yeah, I went through that phase. Like, <laughs> Oh. oh yeah where all of the things that make you really eccentric in the normal world are just like commonplace <laughs> yeah yeah it's so funny uh cassie why are you interested in historic weaving patterns i've always loved primitive antiques things that were really used you could see you know reminds me of my grandparents and mm-hmm. um it's just uh furniture that was you know, handcrafted that were, that was well used are my favorites, and antique textiles. I look at them and I I see I I think I've got this two hundred year old plus linen sheet, and I look at it and I, I hold it in my hands and I go, you know, somebody grew the flax, they processed it, they have use the sheet, they, they hand stitched it, they put their initials in the corner and wow. all of it is with their hand spun linen and wow. it's still usable. And I, yeah. I look at it and I go, I want my flax that I spin to look like that. I want it to yeah. be usable that I could, you know, that it would last a hundred years or 200 years. It's not gonna, you know, and that's why I look at antique textiles, the patterns. I met a coverlet weaver. People in my have crossed my path in my life at the right time. And it's like, they're my gifts, you know? I was mm-hmm. I was weaving. How did I get interested in coverlets? I, I called this elderly lady and somebody told me about her in Vicksburg. I was living in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And um, 
this, uh, I, I called her up and I said, I, I heard you're a weaver and her name was Nona Ledbetter. And I said, Miss Nona, I would love to come over and see what you do. And she said, you know, come on over. And I went over to her house and she pulled, I went out to her little loom room. She had a coverlet on the loom. She opened up this little chest, pulled out all these linen fabrics that she had woven and coverlets. And I just looked at her and said, oh my gosh, will you teach me? And she said, well, sure. <laughs> and I just went, Aww. well, we sat around the kitchen table and we would just do the math on a coverlet for hours, just planning a coverlet. Mm -hmm. And we did that. It's a cherished memory. Oh. And um, I had her in my life for five years before she passed away. And she, um, she, that's how, what, how I weave my coverlets today is because of her. And I'm sure oh, wow. she said, thought to herself, oh, you know, she'll weave one coverlet and, you know, but, um, <laughs> you know, I just kept weaving them and I would, I would, I'd call her all the time and say, you know, oh, no, no, I've got to ask you a question or, you know, wow. but she was a real giving person. I mean, she really was. And that's why I like sharing my love of my craft with people is so many people have shared things with me along yeah. my journey. Oh, mm. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I, th I think it is always so important as like, whenever you're the beneficiary of someone else's generosity to like pay it forward in that way, it seems to be how so many of these crafts have stayed alive. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. exactly. And uh I think that that has 100% been my experience with you when I've asked very basic questions and you sent me all these resources. I even bought some hackles from you. It was awesome. You're a purveyor <laughs> of fine historic implements. Oh. <laughs> well, I've had, uh, I've had several students uh, that have come. I've done demos and they've asked me, you know, I'd like to weave a carbolet. And I go, well, come on over. I'll have a plan one. And I, they've woven their first coverlets, and actually one of one of the girl, uh, one of the young uh, women are is on her second one. She's just uh, finished her panels and sewing it together. So, you know, I, I want it to keep going on, and they they're doing it almost like um, like uh, pop art. Some of them are doing you know patterns with bright colors and taking oh, off and, their own, and making it their own kind of you know art. And, but they're still using the basic coverlet patterns. They're just mm -hmm. doing different color variations mm -hmm. of things, and making it wow. uh, very contemporary. Mm -hmm. I love that. There's like, yeah. I, I love when, I mean, it just goes to show that these things, we see them as these historic or traditional practices, but really they're, I mean, are in many ways, other than the fact that, you know, machines kind of took over, um, they're still equally as relevant and you it's really neat to see them like in a modern context or with a contemporary aesthetic or something like that that's one of my favorite things about sort of where a lot of I've, where I've seen a lot of handcraft it's not like just it can be anything you need it to be I guess yeah. it's very adaptable <laughs> yes or like it changes over time like language does you know like kind of slowly totally Cassie, I was going to ask, do you have, uh, and maybe this is a question that you hate, just like 
getting the uh, how long does it take to make a coverlet yeah, question. I don't hate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but I was going to ask, do you have sort of like a favorite part of the process? I mean, if there's like a coverlet, you have, you know, all of the fiber growing and processing, the weaving itself, the dyeing. Uh, do you have anything in particular that you enjoy the most? Hmm. You know, I, I or really, that you dread. No, I don't dread any of it. <laughs> I really don't. I get really focused, and um, it's like with um, I, I really enjoy the entire process. Every single thing. It's like compartmental, you know, <laughs> loves. I guess I don't know. I, I love every <laughs> single bit of it. Everything I do. I know I've found with certain things, it's like the most disappointing part is finishing it. <laughs> uh, well, actually, you know, sewing the panels together, I, I, I even enjoy that. I mean, I, I'm, I guess I'm a very consistent weaver that mm -hmm. uh, when I beat the threads into place, I have a very consistent beat. The thing about weaving a coverlet is that are your panels going to match? You know, after you do yards and yards of fabric that when you sew three panels together, are your motifs going to match? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the old time weavers, a lot of their, a lot of the Appalachian weavers, their coverlet seams when they put them together didn't match. But you have to think about, well, they were weaving with all hand spun and mm -hmm. sometimes you know, to get a perfect thread, you know, you have to be really on it all the time. I mean, to get mm -hmm. something per to perfection. And they were spinning their fibers for that, for their coverlets. And and also weaving in dark cabins, <laughs> right. and, you yeah. know, and you just, and you just think, and they had chores, they had all kinds of things going on. And, yeah. and they were weaving their best breads. And a lot of times the things did match, but then you would come across somebody that wove co a coverlet that really matched after the craft revival of the um, 1900s, the early 1900s, um, you know, the people started the, you know, relit, reviving the art of coverlet weaving. And, and I guess the public demanded that seams matched, you know, that the oh. panels matched. <laughs> and they started right. and professional weavers, you know, not professional weavers, but we, uh, coverlet weavers started paying more attention to uh, weaving things that seemed upright, you know, mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. seemed. But it is, it, my, my seams match. That's what Nona taught me when I was weaving coverlets, um, a, a consistent beat always weave in a good frame of mind. You can't be upset about something or angry because your beat changes without you even knowing it. And you just have to be really focused when you're sitting down to weave something like that. And I weave it in blocks of time. I don't sit down for an hour and weave a little bit. I weave like in big blocks, chunks of time so that I can get in a rhythm. And, mm. and then things, you know, just come together. My seams all match and I, I really take pride in my seams on my coverlets um, because <laughs> you can't see them. I love wow. that. I, it almost makes me think of like, you know, a really good, uh, really good weaving is sort of a record of a bunch of really good consistent days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, consistent days, yeah. <laughs>
The John C. Campbell Folk School, based in Brasstown, North Carolina, has virtual options for you in various arts so you can temper your craft touch on top of fueling the fire of your mood with us. They've been forging craft knowledge forward for nearly 100 years, and in this socially distanced epoch they want to keep those nerves in your body alert, add some color to your time, and brighten your mind with weekend and week-long classes until in-person meetings on their campus can happen again. Which it will! You can find them through whatever search engine you prefer, many social media outlets, and our website. Check it out! For almost 25 years, North House Folk School has been providing a powerful connection between people and resources, linking time-honored traditions and current best practices that help to ensure the future of handcraft. I've been dying to make my way up to North House ever since the first time I saw one of Instructor April Stone's baskets. And the more I learn about it, the more I'm itching to go. They're offering COVID-conscious in-person classes, but even if you can't make it to one of those, they're also offering a smorgasbord of online courses. So whether you feel most comfortable learning handcraft online or on the shore of Lake Superior, North House Folk School has carved out a place for you. Cassie, do you use flax exclusively and have you ever dabbled in other fibers? Oh, I spin for a project. So like right now, I just finished some Lindsay Woolsey fabric that is a linen, a hand-spun linen um, warp and a wool weft, which is called Lindsay Woolsey. It was a fabric woven a lot in the 1800s and um, even possibly the 1700s actually. But um, so I just finished that. Um, I read in 1990, I read an article in one of the magazines, spinoff or handwoven, about this lady that raised silkworms in California. And I said, oh, how interesting. I think I'll write to her and just get a few eggs and see what that's like. It was, it was a, a fascinating article on silk. And uh, I wrote to her. She sent me some eggs and uh, I raised silkworms that spring, uh, feeding them mulberry leaves. And it was so much fun. I mean, it, I, I enjoyed it so much. And so uh, 30 years later, I'm still raising silkworms oh, and, wow. uh, for 30 years now. And I process silk uh, to silk fabric. I raise them every uh, month of May. And uh, in June, it's, it's a two-month process. The silkworms, they eat mulberry leaves, and I feed them when the leaves come on the trees here in the mountains. They come on about the May 1st. And I usually wait because the, the silkworm is only a silkworm for a month. So the, the longer, the first week of June, the leaves on the mulberry trees are really large, and I don't have to pick that many. So I usually let the babies hatch that have been dormant in the refrigerator, the eggs from last year's moss mating, stay in the refrigerator, a cold dormant cycle. And I, I put the eggs out in April, third week of April, the, the second week of May, they hatch and then they are warm all the way through to the first week of June. And then they spin their cocoons. Each worm will spin almost uh, 500 yards to a mile long filament. Whoa. And you, you pro yeah, you process the silk just like I, I process it just like they do 
in the factories in China or in Japan, uh, all over the world. I do, I make silk, I do programs on silk and, um, and I teach silk classes. Um, I, 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 the Shakers were a religious sect uh, that were in Kentucky. Well, actually they, they had Shaker, uh, other Shaker uh, places all over the United States I had on the East Coast, mm -hmm. East. But they did both silk and flax. So I've taught classes, you know, if, especially at the folk school during Shaker Week, I do a flax and silk class mm -hmm. and combine the two things. And But the silk that I, I make, I, I pull, let students pull hankies uh, or silk cocoons and I spin it into thread. I, I unravel it like they do in the factories um, and make reeled silk, which is just unraveled cocoons, and then they're woven into fabric. Wow. So it's really fascinating. It's something I just a habit I can't seem to break. How many worms do you have at any given or during a, the season? Well, I've raised as many as a thousand. What? It takes about a thousand to to weave a silk blouse. One silk blouse is about a thousand worms. What? And, and they will eat almost fifty pounds of mulberry leaves. Holy it is a God. lot of work. A lot, a lot, a lot of work. And it's, and so I sometimes I raise four hundred now. Sometimes I just raise a couple of hundred. And it's what's so interesting. These are totally domesticated silkworms. Uh, they've been bred for 5,000 years, uh, totally domesticated. They stay in open trays in my loom room or on my dining room table. And they, um, they, I just go out in the mornings. Usually I pick enough food for a couple of days and keep it like lettuce in the refrigerator and feed them every morning and all through the day. And, um, they'll wait for breakfast. <laughs> they're, they're, they're funny little creatures. They're just waiting but, around. Uh, it's it, so funny. Yeah, they won't leave the they won't leave the tray. They don't know to. Yeah. If there was a mulberry tree right next to them, they would. If you didn't feed them, they'd die. Wow. They don't know to crawl out of the box. Oh my and, gosh! And go find food. Wow. So the only time they'll get out of their trays is. Uh, when they're ready to spin. And if you don't provide them a place to spin, then they will go looking for a place to spin. Mm. And uh, they don't go far. But it, what are they going to do? They're just going to spin a cocoon, you know? <laughs> so it's funny. I'll find, a moth. <laughs> I'll find a moth somewhere, you know, and I'll go, okay, now where did you spin your cocoon? Yeah. <laughs> because two, two weeks after they spin, they emerge as a moth. And then um, they, the moths mate and they lay their eggs. They just spray them on a little paper towel. They don't fly. They don't eat. They don't, you know, that they're only there to mate and they'll mate twice. And one moth will lay 250 to 500 eggs. So you don't need that many and wow. um, uh, eggs. And, and then you, you put them in the refrigerator, the eggs after they, they become fertile after about a week after they lay the eggs there. They turn a sh uh, brownish gray and then they're fertile and you put them in the refrigerator till next year. Wow. The whole process is two months. Wow. It's, it's a month as a worm, two weeks in a cocoon, and then two weeks as a moth. Wow. Wow. 
it's funny too that you always think of moths like destroying articles of clothing and then here's like a special kind of moth that helps you make more (laughs) yeah that's right they they are they are very uh they're very interesting silkworms are are really interesting wow yeah how interesting so cassie what about your craft satisfies something that maybe you wouldn't get from another job or career like, was there a difference between what you got from teaching versus like sitting in front of your loom and just sort of doing that process? Well, um, I think, you know, and the, I'm trying to think that uh, the teaching part, I, I kind of combine both things, mm-hmm. you know, and, and my love of sharing and helping. I love helping people and that was what I loved about working in, in the teaching profession is helping students. Mm-hmm. But um, in my craft is I, I'm kind of like, it's like a kindred spirit I have with the old time weavers. I have pictures of, of a lot of the old time weavers. And this is kind of, I don't know, it's something I just do. Nona, who taught me to weave coverlets, I have a little doll that's like my Nona doll. And I, it's like my connection to the past. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just, I don't know. I just see them and I think of, of them weaving and it's, it's a real connection for me. It really fulfills something inside me that I'm carrying on a tradition. Mm-hmm. I, guess, I guess is what I would say mm-hmm. is I'm carrying on something, a lost art mm-hmm. That um, that I don't want to die. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to die out. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. So like it's it's almost like you're you're part of something. You're like contributing to something that's bigger than you. You know, like it's uh, like you're one of the little warp strings in your in the tapestry. That's what I was just gonna do. That <laughs> analogy. Like yeah. <laughs> you're like I'm a warp string, and everyone else <laughs> got all these other warp strings with me. I do feel like weaving is just like, there are so many metaphors that are just on the tip of my tongue and I can't quite put my head around them or like get the words for them. But I'm like, there's a lot of stuff that you could do with this material. (laughs) Well, it's a lot of love is poured into crafts. You know, we all do that. We pour so much love into our art, our crafts and, and it touches something inside us. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Yeah. It fulfills something, that our, our need to create. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, I, I love that. I love that part of it. Yeah. It's, and, and, and then passing on those and just keeping traditions alive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That's so good. Um, so, Cassie, is there someone inside of craft that, your craft in particular, that you really admire and maybe somebody outside of your craft and it could be anybody. Well, I would have to, I, I thought about this. Um, Justin Guizero, he uh, is from Newberry, Vermont. And he's, he's a young man that has been weaving now since he was 16. I, I think Justin is in his thirties. I'm writing an article actually on him for the next shuttle spindle and die pot because he has started um, he, he's been weaving. He trained with uh, Norman Kennedy and Kate Smith at Marshfield School of Weaving. And I believe that's in Vermont. And um, 
the he, when he was 16 and he he again saw somebody doing a flaxtolin demonstration he was hooked uh, his parents were into reenactments and he had a love of history his grandmother very similar with my uh, experiences with my grandmother his grandmother was a spinner a weaver a dyer and so at an early age he caught on and wanted to learn all the old crafts and now he is weaving what is called jacquard coverlets. They're fancy, um, they're fancy coverlets. They were woven by itinerant weavers in the 1800s, early 1800s. And he weaves on barn looms and cool. and, he, and he natural dyes all of his threads wow. that he's doing, uh, batter, indigo. He's just started into coverlet. He does um, textiles for museums. And that's, he's making his living, and I really admire that. He's, he's really trying hard to make a living at his craft. And um, Justin and I formed a friendship through uh, the Linden Symposium they had at Deerfield, Massachusetts, and that's how I got into Deerfield embroidery. I went up there to do a uh, to talk on, on flax to linen process at a conference, and I met Justin. And we've been in touch ever since. And he's going to be speaking at the National Museum of the American Couplet next week as well. But it's uh, but he's going to be speaking there. And I'm just I love his work. His Instagram page is the Burroughs Garrett is the name of his home. Okay. And uh, he has he posts all these incredible things on Instagram. And um He's just a super talented young man, Aww. super talented. And I want to promote him every way I can. Yeah. He's, I want him to find so much success. That, um, And I would also say that, you know, from your podcast, uh, I, you said, Brian, you said, you know, check out one of our podcasts. Well, I plan to go through every single one of them. But <laughs> the first one I did was April Stone. Oh, oh she's and amazing. April, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, and I'm drawn to baskets anyway. Yeah. And uh, I did not know about Black Ash Baskets. Well, I listened to the podcast. Then I went to her Instagram page and I went through every single post of hers mm -hmm. and learned a little bit about her life and then uh, her videos mm -hmm. of the process. I've gone back and listened to the podcast again. <laughs> and I. And it's, you know, it's, uh, I love what y'all are doing. I just think that it's fantastic. People have these incredible stories to tell. And uh, April has shared so much of her life and her work online. I mean, it's there. And um, it's, I just think it's incredible. And I've been blessed because, I, you know, I've, I've had Cherokee basket makers that have, that have helped me and my trying to understand split cane, mm. southeastern cane basketry. And I know, you know, it's it's like when we talk about woodworking, Amy, I look forward to seeing what you do is um, the fibers, the, the wood, the cane, they all speak to you. And April had a way of telling you that as well, um, that, you know, it, I'll never forget a, a Cherokee lady that taught me, uh, Emma Garrett. She said, you got to let the, let the cane speak to you, you know? Mm. And it's like pulling our, a different way to, to uh, thin down 
a piece of wood or a piece of cane. You pull a different way. And and it's, it's learning that process. And I, April just went into great detail. I, I loved her videos that she posted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, up the, you know, how she gets her her strips and her baskets, her or her coffin or, yeah. her, you know, her her burial basket was incredible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so y'all are doing a real service. I, th- I mean, I really do. I think people, <laughs> and I look forward to going through every single one of them oh. of your podcast. Oh, that's so nice. Thanks, Cassie. Yeah. yeah it's, oh uh, my gosh, how flattering. I don't see it as much... I see it as a very selfish service because it's like all people who I've wanted to talk to anyway. And I'm like, oh, well, <laughs> I mean, this is a great excuse to force them to talk to us because it seems like it would help them in some unknown way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, I was going to say when I teach, um, I, you know, I don't teach weaving. I, I, mm. I've never taught. I, well, I've taught weaving early on, but. What I like to do when I teach is I like to expose people to different things. Mm -hmm. So like, for instance, if I'm doing a flax to linen class, uh, a flax to linen, you know, or or linen thread or linen weaving, I will always haul in some looms. And these are people that have never weaving. They're coming to learn just how to process flax. And, I, you know, I'll do that, but I also give them a, a choice that if, hey, if you want to pick up a spindle over here or you want to sit down and spin, spin on a spinning wheel just to see, you know, what it's like or you can weave and I, I, I'll just I, I'll do things that are very simple and I'll write out the directions, lift, harness, one in three, you know, and and put the thread in and at an angle and you know, and let them try the weaving experience. And a lot of them then go on and take other classes from people that really teach more in detail. Um, with coverlet weaving, I've always kind of just done coverlet planning mm. and let people go and learn the overshot process from a, a weaving teacher, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, but I, I like to mix things up, do cordage and mm-hmm. cordage process all the way to flax to, mm-hmm. you know, to different fibers. Yeah. So I think that's, I, I, you know, people have crossed my path when I think about outside the box. Um, I try to get people to look at other people's work and, and I, I admire a lot of people. I'm especially drawn to basket weavers mm-hmm. and um, people that work with leather. Oh yeah. You know, mm-hmm. because I have passions, I have passions. With that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Well, which yeah. perfectly goes into the next question, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Outside of uh, weaving, what else are you interested in? Hint, hint, hint. <laughs> oh, funny. Oh, funny, funny, funny. Uh, well, like I said, I've done brain tanning, and I always have a project, yeah. beadwork, uh, porcupine quill work. Oh, I've really done that, too. Yeah. To uh, the Plains Indians, uh, their work. And I lived with the Indian family off and on for years um, out in Wyoming. Mm. And, um, and they, they would, if I wanted to learn something, they would find somebody, Oh, I know somebody that can teach you how to do that. And um, I've done uh, river cane baskets. Uh, Really the process of splitting cane took me years to learn. And I didn't, I didn't want to, to to sell anything. I just wanted to learn. I I, I would go as a young person and watch the Choctaw ladies at Choctaw Indian Fair in Philadelphia, Mississippi, uh, split split cane for their baskets. 
And I would just watch them. And I, I just wanted to learn the process. And fortunately, I had people that taught me to, to do that. And then it was a lot of practice, years of practice, where I felt like I could just sit down and split cane, you know. Mm. Um, in fact, the best compliment I probably ever had was one of the ladies said, oh, you already know how to do it. Whoa. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, that's the best compliment anybody could ever give me. Um, but you talk about uh, interest. I've got embroidery projects going on and um, that I do with my linen, my linen thread. I've got a loom that's set up with only hand-spun linen, uh, doing some reproduction linen fabrics uh, from museum pieces mm-hmm. that I use in talks, you know, when I go and do presentations at museums. And, um, oh, and I can get out there. I can, I saw a, you know, I said not one more thing. Well, <laughs> I saw I picked up a, a magazine one time, and I saw it was a cigar box guitar, and I, I'm an avid blues fanatic, and, and I, I saw I saw this cigar box guitar. I said, "Oh my gosh, I got to make one of these," and um, and so I got students in the school. One of the students did it for a project for a class project, and. And we just made guitars. I mean, we made cigar box guitars. We put, we made them electric with oh, wow. a radio shack. And, and um, so we were playing slides. So, yes, I always have something going on in my house. Oh. A million different things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, and I go, not one more thing now. Not one more thing. I got to get good at what. <laughs> good at one thing right? oh man yeah i understand <laughs> uh, so cassie if someone wants to see more of your work where can they find you uh, my instagram page is cassie dixon textiles and um, i teach at john c campbell uh, every year and i teach at penland school of crafts i do presentations for gills and and the National Museum of the American Cabalist. Yeah, cool. At, at, in Bedford. Yeah. Oh, and I was just gonna gonna ask real briefly if would you mind just telling us a little bit about um, John C. Campbell and just sort of what they're all about and what kind of things they offer there. We've had a lot of people from Penland, and we've I feel like we're hammering in that Penland is a great place to learn. But uh, you know, John C. Campbell's got a lot of really great stuff going on too. Um, John C. Campbell Folk School. You know the these craft schools sometimes have more uh, uh, different types of interests. So where I think of Penland is, is doing crafts, sometimes I think of it as a lot of more artistic type of things. And, and even though there's so many hands-on, everything's hands-on. Right. But where, when I think of the folk school, um, is is traditional crafts mm-hmm. is blacksmithing mm-hmm. and it's um it's basketry it's natural dyeing it's flax they have all the equipment set up for you it's uh watercolor painting it's um i'm trying to think of some other things that they do broom making uh, cooking cooking classes broom making yes and it's more of the traditional crafts mm-hmm. I, I would probably say that that they focus on cool well cassie thank you so so much for taking the time and to come join us uh and share a little bit about your experiences with weaving 
uh, in teaching. And well, everything. this has been so much fun. Yeah, I've enjoyed it too. Oh, wonderful. And I'm so glad you, like again, I'm so glad y'all are doing this. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, thanks. Yeah. We've really enjoyed it. Like I said, it's yeah. been a interesting, um, interesting technological learning curve, but uh, <laughs> no one wants to, no one wants to hear about how the sausage is made. So it's, no, uh, yeah. I won't bother getting into it. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks yeah. again, Cassie. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay. Y'all take care. Okay, so next up, we have an interview with stone carver, mason, and sculptor Miriam Johnson. And to give you a glimpse into the cold, hard world of stonework, here's a brief clip from that interview. I think, you know, something like, I think like a lot of people have that kind of little dream of building their own house one day or something like that. Mm -hmm. I often just daydream about the different ways that I would I would go about doing that because I wouldn't, I don't think I'd build a house out of stone. Oh, really? (laughs) Guess what, Umble? What? I have another announcement to make. (laughs) (laughs) Was was my what a little too tough for you? A little too tough? Yeah, it was intimidating. Can I ask you? (laughs) Do you want to ask me again? I mean, can I tell you uh, is what I meant to say. <laughs> <laughs> you have permission. I have two workshops planned for next year. Uh, one is an online opportunity and the other an in-person one. The mm-hmm. online opportunity is being offered through the San Francisco Center for the Book. And it's a class on finishing tool making. It's like a three session thing in January. Cool. And then I have another class at Penland School of Craft. Woo, woo. It's a full eight-week concentration. It's going to be a bookbinding, tool-making, and gold-tooling bonanza. (laughs) I was supposed to teach the workshop with Jim Croft, but because of pandemic-y stuff, Jim's not able to make it. He's okay, but Mm -hmm. he's not going to be able to make make the drive out from Idaho. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm going to be flying Han Solo. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. So how does that affect the podcast? How does that affect me? Basically, well, everything revolves around me. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> it hopefully will not. The thing that will make it actually it could even be better because uh, hopefully we'll be able to interview some of the amazing craftspeople that are at Penland um, from a socially safe distance. Yes, that sounds fun. Yeah. So under the announcements. <laughs> onto the announcements. So uh, please feel free to hit subscribe wherever you're listening to podcasts and rate and review the show because it really, really, really helps with the visibility of the show. Um, And we have gotten a couple new reviews on Apple Podcasts. We always love reading those. So thank you so much for doing that. Yeah. So also thank you to everyone who's supporting us on Patreon. It helps us pay for the regular website fees, the maintenance hosting and if we get more support we can dedicate time to different side projects and more interviews um and we love we love 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 doing them so if you guys want to help us out we really appreciate it on that note thank you so much to christina b for joining our patreon we really 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 appreciate it thank you Uh, you can also follow us on Instagram at Cut the Craft Podcast to see images of the guest's work and stay up to date on happenings and releases. 
You can find us both on Instagram at Amy underscore Umble and BH Beidler. And if you have any suggestions for interviews or thoughts or collaborations, we're getting into that a little bit. Um, please go ahead and email us at cutthecraftpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, thank you so much to all of the people who help make the show possible, including but not limited to Brad Vetter, who is our graphic designer, uh, the High Divers for their music, and Luke Mitchell of the High Divers for kind of doing the back-end mastering of the episodes. And then also, of course, to Justin Williams, who writes those commercial tidbits that uh, poetically introduce the next guest. So thank you all so much. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did make it. See you next time.